Welcome to La Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to La Corner. Back in 2016, FIBA announced a groundbreaking strategic partnership with Perform that led to FIBA Media's creation. The joint venture between the two organizations is committed to increasing the value of the basketball fan experience and providing fans with unprecedented access to content. For this new Le Corner episode, we had the pleasure to discuss FIBA Media's mission and strategy with its managing director, Andrew Ryan. A great look at how the International Federation delivers content to its fans and their new strategic plans on their courtside 1891 platform with two circles. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hey, Sam. Really, uh, really good to be on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Well, glad to have you here. Um, for for our audience that might not know you, can you introduce yourself very very briefly to them? Sure. So my name is Andrew Ryan. I'm the managing director of FIBA Media. Uh, FIBA being the International Basketball Federation, responsible for everything from the glamour events like the Men's and Women's World Cup all the way down to, to junior global and continental events. Uh, been in that role for about two and a half years now. I'm big, big basketball fan in, in addition to a number of other sports, which I've got a lot of passion for. Um, but really, really great to be a part of a, an incredibly innovative and forward-thinking um, venture and federation. Terrific. And what was your story before joining FIBA? How do you, how do you get to a role of managing director at FIBA? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. It took, it took a few steps. I actually, uh, for my sins, started out as a corporate lawyer for probably um, a good 10 or so years, actually. I, I grew up in um, just north of Brisbane, Australia, practiced corporate law for a few years over there and then eventually switched to London, um, you know, sort of went back and forth a little bit between London and New York and LA a couple of times uh, and then ended up working for one of the national radio stations in the UK, a company called Absolute Radio, and they just recently rebranded from Virgin Radio. And I think up until that point, as much as I was a a huge sports fan and it was very much part of my you know my personal life I don't think I'd given it a great deal of contemplation that it was a legitimate career option or an industry that was really feasible to get into for the most part and while I was at absolute radio um, it was quite fortunate that in the early months of my time there we actually bid for and won Premier League commentary rights for for the first time in the station's history so actually part of the part of the tender process that the uh the Premier League and their agency ran for those and through that process got to meet a couple of people who were involved in the industry realized that actually in terms of job opportunities it was probably a bigger one than I'd, I'd contemplated before and I think in particular given that whether it was media through forms of music, television, or in particular sports, and that combination with with sports as an industry felt like probably the first time in my working career that I looked and thought, okay, I think I've settled on what I really want to do and what I want to get into. Yeah. Um, so got a long story short, did a postgraduate course in, in sports law and practice, um, managed to do really well at that, and ended up getting recruited by Perform Sports Media, who... Uh, you know, had just <clears throat> just IPO'd uh, on the London Stock Exchange at the time, and 
not not a brand I was very familiar with as a, as just a sports fan, but uh, I came to realise pretty quickly that it was a, a, a pretty good pick. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, we were we were. It was I mean it was a great still entrepreneurial company that had a great entrepreneurial bent, but that was also being maximised at the time by having a, a significant amount of um, investment and I guess also leading the way in a couple of really burgeoning areas of the sports commercial and sports media industry, whether it was, you know, live streams on betting services, data for the betting industry, building websites and apps for different companies, starting to get into OTT products on, on multiple fronts, whether sort of more general ones or sports specific ones. So it was probably just the best grounding during that sort of five year period that I could have asked for. And uh, that, that, basically gave me an exposure to just about everything that could be done in the in the sports media and sports rights industry over that period. Um, at that time, at Stats Perform, there was the publisher uh, piece, there was the data piece, there was, what else was there, the, 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 the audio, uh, the video, um, the video piece. So like at that, at that time, Stats Perform had regrouped all sorts of media industries inside the organization on top of the data uh, piece that is their fundamental bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just just for clarity, so it was it was back in the day when it was still Perform Sports Media. Stats Perform is the the I guess the combined entity that came when the betting content business was sold off and and acquired by Stats. Uh, but back back at certainly in that time, you're completely right. There there were so many avenues of commercial activity. You know the 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 watch and bet video service for betting customers was the absolute leader in its field. Uh, the company owned Running Ball, which was the the quickest and probably most accurate betting data feed um, that was available. Had the OmniSport News Video Service, the ePlayer, which is an embeddable video player that went on to to sports publisher sites. We had the the Live Sport initial foray into OTT activity. All these broadcast partnerships that set up with you know WTA, and then and then eventually that rolled into a deal with Fever, so um, that's that's how Fever Media came about. And I guess you know, before I sort of ended up at the IOC um, for four years, I was part of the team that helped helped construct and, and finalise that deal with Fever, which, as I said, was part of a, a few broadcast partnerships that uh, that Perform had engineered with rights holders at the time. And so that was a that was a really really interesting period where Perform was looking quite holistically as to how you could take a rights holder relationship and package together all of these diverse media elements, improve yeah. them, um, monetize them in different ways that may not have been necessarily done before and really, really improve the economic lot of rights holders around the world. And that's something they've done pretty successfully over a number of years. Interesting. So you arrived after the whole strategy was put together, having that long-term relationship that we'll get uh, back to uh, a bit later down the road on this podcast, but you arrived to just deploy the strategy that had been validated after the the joint venture for FIBA Media had been signed. Yeah, correct. So uh, I think the the FIBA Media joint venture, uh, I guess if we go back to the the history of it. Um, FIBA was FIBA had done a couple of things. First and foremost, it had it had developed a strategy where. It wanted to increase both the frequency and the prominence of international basketball and international basketball had some 
high-quality, high well-known events or at the World Cup or Eurobasket and the like, but it tended, if you go back a decade ago, to float in and out of consciousness. And probably aside from the teams that were participating in those tournaments, there wasn't a great way to necessarily get local populations to engage with national national team basketball on a really regular basis. So uh, they developed a, a competition strategy which implemented a whole qualifiers process um, on the for the continental events as well as the World Cup. That came into what was an overarching media strategy, which obviously required both the production and monetization of all of this new content. And that's how the discussion with Perform came about as to constructing a joint venture which could bring in the expertise and the resources of Perform on the one side and utilising the rights, the connections, the like of FIBA on the other side. And ultimately, without you know, simplifying what was you know what's quite a quite a complex and and, and uh, very very detailed partnership, that's what created FIBA Media, the desire to to to, to both you know monetise and produce uh, FIBA content to the greatest uh, greatest extent. Possible, and so that that deal was one of the last ones that I did while I was still still a performer. Obviously, backed by, by uh, you know, I was part of the legal team over there still. Um, yeah. with a really, really great commercial team. Um, you know, guys like Jacopo Tonoli, and backed by Alex Rice, who was the former at the time, who who really did a great job in coming up with. <clears throat> you know, not not just not just the economic rationale, but the but the concepts that sat behind um, that that partnership. So. I sort of left at that stage, ended up at the International Olympic Committee for, for four years, got to do some some really, really interesting stuff there as the, the sort of um, <clears throat> head of uh, legal and business affairs on the media side. So looked after all of the, the media rights deals that we uh, we entered into over that period, um, got involved in a lot of the direct-to-consumer and digital strategies, sort of involved sort of fairly frequently with you know, the progression and development of the Olympic Channel and the, and the I guess the subsequent digital strategy that came out of that, uh, and then the opportunity came up to come back and I guess not just not just contribute to FIBA Media but sit directly in the middle of it, and it was probably at that time in my career where I was looking to probably do two things. One was to to really capitalised on the commercial know-how and probably digital know-how that I've developed over yep. the previous you know, seven or eight years uh, and also shift out of being you know, someone who's technically referred to as a lawyer because I thought my, my contribution had become far wider than that and I was ready to take on something that was a, a broader challenge. So the, the opportunity with FIBA Media almost just could not have fit more yep. perfectly for what I was looking at at the time and and. Obviously, uh, my skill set fit what the uh, what the team from Fever and Design uh, were looking for at the time as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I was going to say it's, a, it's like a, a, a typical journey somehow. Just have somebody discovers that he can go into sports a bit later than than expected, but at the end of the day, you had a very strong skill set in one particular department. Because of it, you got into the different deals that made you touch different verticals within the organizations. And as an organization. Um, was putting together a strategy. You had that overall visibility. You had the understanding of what the publishing and the, the content space looked like, but also the background of working for an international, a big international organization. And you combine all of that to become the managing director of FIBA. Uh, and so what does a managing director in an organization the size of FIBA do? Like what does a typical day look like? And what are your missions and responsibilities within the organizations, within the organization? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I guess I could safe, safely say for one thing that 
when I when I took the role that started in November 2019, I certainly didn't expect that we'd have a global pandemic that would uh, provide quite a few challenges, to say the least, over the next couple of years. We actually went into our sales cycle for what we refer to as cycle two, which is uh, end of 2021 through to the end of 2025 for our media rights. We went into that in March of 2020, so it couldn't have been overlaid. Uh, I was about to say any better, but probably any worse with the uh, with the COVID impact period. And that was also a period of time in which obviously, as the case with all international federations and leagues, uh, FIBA was having to go through a lot of tough decision-making about whether or not to hold events, where to hold events, where games could still be played, what was in the best interests of not only players, but partners on both the media and sponsorship side as well. And so that that was probably the just the most unpredictable and slightly insane, I think, two years that I'll have um, in my in my career. I guess, you know, on the one hand, we would we were juggling all of the you know the uncertainty and the changes that were coming around around the schedule and the you know the potential availability of players or games, um, but at the same time trying to create you know create a, a cohesive sales strategy and trying to deliver messages that notwithstanding what was happening in that environment at the time that our product was one that was still very much investable into and was not only going to be you know, as good as it had been in the previous four years, but we were implementing. Um, certain things in terms of the way it was going to be produced or marketed or delivered that was actually going to actually improve where we were at the time. And it, you know, massive, massive credit to the guys that we have on our commercial sales team that we, we got through that period actually in, a, in an extraordinarily good place, both in terms of visibility and also from the financial side. Um, but in terms of, you know, if I have to nut it down, what my key responsibilities are I guess it really we, we have we have almost three distinct units in FIBA Media one sort of sales and commercial side of where those people actually sit within the design broadcast partnerships team but they spend quite a lot of their time on FIBA related um, commercial activity then we have production and operations which I guess is sort of the the bread and butter of of, of what people would expect from um, you know a media entity uh, within within the International Sports Federation that's <clears throat> both you know content, content development, content production, the actual live production of games, the distribution of that, and all of the operations that sit behind it. And then yeah. on the third side, we've got um, a pill that's uh, essentially direct consumer and digital marketing as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, a little bit later on on different topics. Uh, but so a little bit of it is in particularly on the commercial side and the D2C side, which are probably my areas of expertise more so than the production and operations side of things um yeah. just really not i guess one or two things i i, I try you know trying to empower my team to to go and do their jobs as much as possible and making sure that i'm communicating what my expectations are and make sure they're clear on what FIBA's expectations are whether yeah. in terms of actual specific sales processes which has obviously been a fairly frequent topic of conversation over the uh, the last couple of years or our strategy in terms of how we're trying to you know, add certain assets on top of that or obviously as once again we'll talk more in future the development of that DC strategy which has come with the, the launch of the courtside 1891 product as well um, probably on to, that's that's sort of one side of the interaction the other one is almost I, don't, I hate, hate the term political sometimes but it's essentially managing that fever relationship and you know, if 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 anything, I probably talk to the the senior people at, at FIBA, whether it's Frank Lenders or 
Pat Collar, the head of communications, on a on a far more regular basis than I do senior people at design. Uh, the design side has got a lot of trust that what I and what FEMA Media is doing is very well planned and, and everyone has clear expectations. Um, what my job is just as much to make sure that everyone at FEBA is comfortable with what we're doing and to make sure they're getting the chance to both collaborate and input to make sure that what we're producing or what we're trying to do is in line with what FEBA's expectations and objectives are. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I think um, we'll get to the courtside piece a bit later, as you mentioned, production and operation, pretty straightforward, how you go capture and, you know, standardize the, the, the quality of the feeds and distribute them as efficiently as possible. On the sales and commercial side of things, um, most of the value that you guys are getting, you know, like, for example, UEFA, they have 20 plus competitions they cover. They only have a few that are actually profitable, which are mostly around the Champions League and the UA, um, Europa League. Um, and then the, the, the Euros, well, actually, to be challenged, but in any case, you, it's mostly the, the work that you guys do around the international competitions for the national teams, right? That you pull the most value more than the BCL and the other more uh, team-related competitions. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So, so FIBA Media, was it was set up to monetize the national team competitions exclusively. There's some, some add-ons that we have in terms of um, access to club content for certain purposes, but it's, it's basically exclusively um, for the monetization of national team basketball. Um, <clears throat> for a period of time when the BCL first started, we, we supported that venture in terms of helping with their sales processes because we obviously had a lot of relationships already set up um, mm -hmm. and worked with that team to try to push the competition along for the first sort of <clears throat> four or five years of its uh, existence. Uh, they're now working with a dedicated external agency who looks after both their commercial media rights and their commercial sponsorship rights as a single package, which is not something that we were we were set up to do in the first place. So it, it absolutely does come from the national team basketball. I think where we probably differ quite materially from the likes of UEFA or FIFA or anyone in the football world for that matter is that because of the one one FIBA concept, which essentially brings all of the different governance elements under the one umbrella, mm -hmm. we not only have access to the global events in terms of the Men's and Women's World Cup, the Olympic qualifiers, the uh, underage global events, but also the continental events. So we will we will sell to the same broadcasters most of the time, Eurobasket, the Asia Cup, Afrobasket, America, and qualifiers for those events as well. And what that allows us to do is both have have ways that we can we can optimize packages for broadcasters in particular territories. So good example is a lot of countries in Europe where the team they have strong basketball tradition or they have strong basketball team that team may not necessarily get to the world cup ever or, or frequently but they'll be a strong Eurobasket team so the fact that we actually have access to all of that content means that we've almost got a you know a, a, you know, a line that we can throw out to, to almost every every territory in the world and the second part is that we have it's not quite a 12 month a year calendar of content but it's not shockingly far off it for, for an international federation property and that's something that probably most international federations aren't able to offer because of that usual distinction between things being run regionally as against globally yeah that's super interesting and that you know the more power to the international federation that really centralizes and that does have that visibility on all the continental activities because 
you know, as you're looking to develop the, the, the basketball fan, the more leverage and the more data sources you have from all the data. Uh, from all the t- territories, uh, the stronger to it because we see that in football, it's not necessarily that easy between the in, you know the international federations and the confederations. Um, so that's actually a, a huge element of development that has a lot of commercial value beyond the beyond the practice of the sport, right? Yeah, completely. And I, th- and I think for fans, it's a better situation as well too. I mean, fans who follow international basketball or, or want to follow top level basketball generally have a pretty good idea of which broadcaster is going to carry those games because it's all coming underneath the the one banner. Um, they know that they can follow both continental and global events through the FIBA social accounts, for instance. It's not necessarily having to have this big mishmash of, you know, yeah. where do I find the European qualifiers? Then where do I go for, for you know, the European championship? And then I've got to go to someone else for the, for the World Cup. Um, and obviously, you know, football is a few steps ahead of basketball in terms of in terms of pure global fandom, um, and obviously in, in, in a number of countries anyway. Uh, so, you know, whether that's a massive, massive issue for them is another question. But I, as a, as a basketball fan, uh, you know, has sat out sat outside FIBA as you know just an onlooker. I've always very much appreciated that relatively coordinated approach to both the the continental and global events. Yeah, which naturally leads us to. Courtside 1891, right? Uh, because you have all that centralized approach. So just a, a small summary, and I'll let you introduce it more extensively to the audience. But you, you guys just launched with two circles, uh, Courtside 1891, uh, which is the new primary live streaming subscription product for FIBA. Um, and so basically everything you have been, been just mentioning is because you have you, you do have the right access to all those competitions to centralize all the basketball content beyond NBA and EuroLeague, right? You can centralize all the international comp. Well, actually, when you come to those of club competitions, but all the international competitions can come under that that platform. Does that the 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 objectives of that platform go beyond this content? Yeah, it does. So, so I think you, you've hit on hit on a good point there, Sam. First and foremost, we've got a great portfolio of content that once again is relatively year round. That is a high quality basketball action that's happening. Uh, you know, frequently and across basically the the entire world, given the number of countries that participate in either qualifiers or, or other FIBA events, so that's in a way the the bedrock or the basic bedrock of, of that platform. And certainly, from a revenue generating perspective, the, the the concept of selling subscriptions to access that that particular content is a really really important part of the mix. I think where courtside eighteen ninety one differs in terms of the approach that other international federations have taken or other media products around is that we've we've developed the concept as something that is very almost property neutral in a way so uh, we you know back if we go back right to the start of how this came about um, you know it was probably maybe a month after I turned up at, at FIBA and we sat down and you know we're just talking talking about talking about the future and and um, one of the one of the key questions that Frank Lenders asked, and Frank has a there's a very very good way of, of setting the scene with these things for discussion. He sort of asked the question: Is FIBA fit for the future? And you know, it's a very very open ended question in a way, but a very very challenging one. You know, and particularly as we were about to move into you know the right sales process, where you have a, a quite dedicated task. You know how important it is economically for the organisation. And then to to be hit with that, it was the ability to sort of step back and say, okay, we have this very important job on the one side, but actually probably from a 
higher level, we've got an important job of just working out how to not only safeguard but improve the the future of FIBA as an organisation and basketball as a sport as much as we could. Uh, <clears throat> so for that that discussion, we had you know, a relatively uh, you know a group group spanning a number of different departments in FIBA, whether it was us from FIBA Media, people from FIBA Marketing, people from FIBA Communications, obviously Frank um, very very heavily involved. And we also brought in two circles for, for an external perspective. And they, they'd worked with FIBA for quite a while as well. Very obviously very, very well reputed um, on a number of fronts, whether it's whether it's digital products, whether it's uh, marketing, particularly fan data and, and I guess uh, de- developing fan data to create great marketing uh, activities around products as well. So they they were part of that discussion from the start. And we looked at a number of a number of approaches that we could do. FIBA's already got you know, the FIBA.basketball site, which is a great site in terms of the, the bulk of content that it has and the amount of competitions that it covers within international basketball world. Uh, you know, there's different apps that were created for, for different competitions. But we tried to approach this very much from a, if I'm a member of the basketball community and I'm a fan, am I served well by any one particular product at the moment? And if I'm not, what do I as a fan probably most want? Uh, and when we looked back at it, we thought actually there's probably no one product that gives the basics of watch, follow in terms of live data or tracking in terms of live scores um, that was on the market that catered for both data and video in a way. You know, there's there's loads of live scores types apps that you can follow basketball competitions on. There's you know, YouTube. You can probably search for basketball highlights from just about any league you want. Um, there was just nowhere that really aggregated that in particular. And, you know, clearly there's some basketball fans who are only interested in the NBA or only, you know, the Italian nationals who follow Serie A or, you know, Spanish followers who follow follow the domestic league there. But there's a high proportion of basketball followers who also follow one more than one competition and certainly have an interest in doing so and certainly would probably do so more if they had an easy way to do it. So that was where we came from, from very much a, a fan need basis. And we thought we could develop something that actually met an underserved community of, of, of basketball basketball lovers. And that's how Courtside 1891, I guess the underlying product was developed. And then it came to the strategy of, you know, do it. What, what's our benefit for having this as a FIBA branded product? Is it actually a better option to have it as a as a product that has no direct affiliation to, to the International Federation? So in a way, FIBA was the best positioned organization in the basketball world to do this. But we also didn't want to do it on a basis that it felt and looked and came across like a fever product. So as it is at the moment, we've got all the, the major fever events that is part of, part of subscription packages, and that, that will very much be an important part of it moving forward. But we've also got live data from uh, and, and from over 100 basketball leagues around the world. So it's sort of essentially trying to create a one-stop shop in terms of a game centre type experience. That is being supplemented by highlights of a number of leagues, and we've already incorporated stuff like uh, the Basketball Africa League into that, the Basketball Champions League, um, FIBA Europe Cup, and a few of the other club competitions as well, on top of the national team basketball 
we're about to start moving into discussions with various domestic leagues to work out how we can create partnerships that are mutually beneficial and whether those partnerships to begin with just look like having highlights content from those competitions and in, in, uh, and, and us trying to help promote those competitions in and of themselves and then perhaps even moving on to the situation where you end up having, you know, whether it's live rights in dark markets or markets where where there's not a huge, a huge amount of demand from local broadcasters take it. We'd like to be that aggregation platform that for the basketball community, both in terms of the community of fans and the community of leagues, is the one-stop shop where you can where you can certainly follow every game that you would like to and then have that supplemented by either live and or um, on-demand video. Okay. That's super interesting. And so in terms of the rights that you sell, sold around the 2021-2025 uh, cycle for the national teams, did you start carving out some of the rights to be able to use those already on Courtside 1891? Or is it something that where the broadcasters that acquired the rights actually acquired the whole package and those are, those are um, elements of content that won't be available in certain territories? Yeah, it's, it's um, a very, very good question. Um, the Certainly, we absolutely had to have discussions around carving them out of, of rights agreements. And fortunately, a large proportion of our rights holders are very, very forward-thinking media organisations, and they realise that, um, you know, first and foremost, we, we, we didn't want to position this as an aggressive or competitive activity by FIBA or by the new Course I 91 partnership with Two Circles. <clears throat> what we're trying to develop is something that very much, first, first and foremost, is a great place to access information on basketball. And when you go and access information on basketball, one thing we want to try to do is make it as easy as possible for fans to watch watch that game live. Um, and first and foremost, for FIBA, that most likely place is going to be the national broadcaster in in each country. And so, if I'm you know, if I'm a French national trying to watch Gobert and Fournier out there on the court for for French basketball, then actually I'm probably going to want to go to to France TV's France Television's uh, broadcast of the game. And in in the the versions we'll release of the app in coming up in coming months, that is very much the 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 desire to say okay. You know, we will push you towards the uh, the local broadcast of that game, and so it's been developed with an idea of where, you know, as that as ag- aggregator, of we're a great place to start off. You find out where to watch, and then we will take you there. Obviously, whether or not it's in countries where there's not necessarily the same bulk of basketball available, or <clears throat> the, the the fact it's an English language service, so servicing an expat community from from English speaking nations, or or any other reason why it's just difficult to, to access um, content the fans want to watch, Courtside 891 is a, a great place to, to subscribe and be able to access that content and have a, you know, an experience which is one that delivers you both the, both the live game feed but also um, the ability to engage in second screen type activity of tracking the scores and the stats that go with it as well. Yeah, the intent is just for it to become the one-stop shop where you go consume your basketball information and then you guys intelligently redirect in the right directions and that that hope that all makes a lot of sense and in some way it's pretty close to the, the to the strategy that I discussed not so not so long ago with Mutasim from uh World Volleyball uh who are who have started acquiring rights you know around Serie A volleyball for example and yeah. it, it all makes a lot of sense the one major difference is They very much went under the volleyball world branding and you guys decided to go for a completely different branding, which I think has advantages and disadvantages. But what what was the whole rational behind this uh, this choice? 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's good. It's a it's a it's a it's a helpful comparison to talk to because it probably illustrates the differences of, of those two strategies. And, and I know I know Mota from sharing a basketball court with him occasionally here in in Lausanne. A very very clever guy, and, and it's great to keep an eye on what's happening over at FIBB because it's it's a it's a sport which has a lot of untapped potential and, and, and a, you know, a great visual spectacle as it is. Um, CBC would be very mad at you for calling it FIVB, by the way. So, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Trying try to do the honor of looking after the uh, looking after the old days, um, but that, you know they they have started to utilize that investment cash to CBC to do some really really interesting things, both on the digital front and I guess the reconstruction of the of the tour as well. Uh, where, where there's probably a couple of key differences, you've already highlighted one just in terms of of the brand brand name. I think the the um, Volleyball TV and then well volleyball the product you know the sort of two products that interact I guess on the digital front um, on the on the volleyball side of things uh, is that it probably probably doesn't fit the same view that we have of trying to service a fan that's not dedicated to one competition or another it's it's almost more of the the sort of central hub and spoke model of you know you go to volleyball world and then you can go to a separate section that looks after the volleyball nations league and go to a separate section that looks after the um looks after Serie A volleyball um and obviously all that stuff sort of intermingles when it comes to the ott product for the live streaming uh, i think we've sort of looked at it tried to look at it a bit more of actually why don't we produce one single cohesive experience where we're looking at someone as a basketball fan, not necessarily one who's dedicated to a particular property. And so our game center is, you know, not branded with particular individual properties. Um, you know, we're, we're essentially trying to promote, trying to do everything under that courtside 1891 brand, which represents what we think a basketball fan is is going to going to want to be served and hopefully served in a way which is relatively personalized for them. Um, I think the with the the volleyball world strategy as well, the fact that they have actually gone out and and acquired rights as such from from a domestic property, certainly in our current strategy, that's not something that we're looking to do. What we're what we're more likely to find in future is actually more partnerships that we will create with with domestic leagues, and so we're not going to go out and. And buy you know, the Australian NBL domestic broadcast rights, and then go and sell them domestically, and also try to use them on an OTT service. It's it's more a case of saying, where are you utilising your content that you're not getting great value from at the moment? We think as a dedicated basketball product and something that's probably bringing in fans from a lot of different parts of the world, we can be a great place for you to get extra visibility from your league and hopefully monetized in a way that's far more effective than putting a live stream up on YouTube where your sponsors aren't getting visibility, you're not getting traction back to your own digital properties, and you're really not learning anything about the fans who are consuming on there. Yeah, and it's a good transition to the FIFA Plus platform that was just launched that very much goes uh, about that strategy. So they created all the long format content, which is something I'm, I'm pretty sure you, get, you guys have projects on, but they also are not looking to acquire or, or retain some of the content. It's more a matter of saying, hey, you want to watch this content? If it's not available in your country, you can watch it on our platform. Otherwise, we are going to redirect you to the right uh, broadcaster because it's actually a promotion uh, promotional ele uh, element rather than a competing one. And it's funny because also in this, uh, in the uh, sport tech world, there are organizations that are looking at that from a startup angle, like a buzzer, who are looking to actually do the promotion, not compete with the broadcasters, but create mutual uh, value in some kind of way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was interesting to see FIFA Plus come out only probably a, you know, a month or so after we launched Quartz at 1891. And once again, there's, you know, there's some similarities in what they're doing. You've hit, hit the nail on the head of one where it's, it's looking, you know, from the live streaming purpose to be somewhere more a home of, of content that, that is not, you know, necessarily the domestic, you know, the major domestic market, for instance, but actually servicing either overflow fans in other countries or in places where there's just not as much visibility um, of the particular league. <clears throat> I think where we, you know, on the, on the FIFA Plus side, you know, I, I liked that we took the innovative and bold step of going for a completely fresh and new brand rather than necessarily housing it back with the, um, with the, the International Federation, you know, not not questioning FIFA, I'm sure they've got very good reasons for everything they do um, on that front. And, you know, from having looked at that product, it's a really, really nicely designed product, very easy to navigate, and they've done, they've done a good job with it. Um, so I think, once again, you know, we're trying to look at this as a, as a fan-centred product rather than necessarily something that's that's reinforcing a relationship back to an existing um, federation. I think on the, on the long-form content um, part, it's... It's an interesting question, and it's obviously very much all the rage within sports federations and sports leagues at the moment. And you know, rightly so. There's been some great case studies. You know, whether or not Drive Survives, the easy one to pluck out, but plenty of others that have have done a really, really good job. Um, I think when when it comes to the long form content, uh, I guess what FIFA Plus is doing looks a little bit more what. Olympic Channel was trying to do back in the day of saying we'll put a big investment into original content series, but we want you to come to us to find that. And I guess the 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 upside of that is having you know that investment is going directly towards bringing people towards your own platform. I guess the downside of that is that you know if you're looking in that sort of Venn diagram of you know people who sit on who sit and watch content on Netflix and are you know sports fans or have a have a you know some sort of interest in sport. But aren't necessarily strong football fans uh, or strong Olympic fans, and then you've got you know the, the people you know the the people who who you know the, the delivery of that content to to that group that you're almost looking for a meeting of the minds there. If you're you're reaching people who might not necessarily be fans of your particular property or fans of your particular sport, and trying to give them a reason to engage, in which case they will probably come to your separate digital properties later on and i guess where we're looking on the long form content space is probably more in that area of how is it that we can use some of the really great stories that sit around international basketball and to house them on platforms that will bring new audiences whether or not to course 1991 or to fever events full stop rather than necessarily saying here's a big budget for original content creation but we're going to essentially make you come to us to consume that probably makes a lot of sense right like fifa is and it's a funny debate because looking at the fifa plus platform i was like well why would i go there and then you start looking at their original content and you're like oh well i do consume a lot of the content i consume on netflix as a sport fan are the sport related topics right and football is my favorite sport so why not go see more of that quality content directly on the fifa plus for you it's a bit of a different path because it's about you know customer acquisition so for you it would be more top of the funnel create some content on those existing platforms so that people come to courtside but not, you're not going to challenge netflix amazons of this world you're more going to use them as a funnel to your platform to grab you know more and more users that you can 
Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, and I think it's that's that's not to say that we'd never do anything in that long form content space, or that we won't utilize some content that's being produced for other means on Courtside eighty nine one. Absolutely, absolutely not. And you know, for the for the vote, it's it's not Netflix style content, but we have weekly magazine shows or wrap up shows from <clears throat> FIBA World Basketball, from the Basketball Africa League that are already sitting on the, the service, which are not just basic highlights content but i think our our view for the moment is that if you're going to make the investment into those long-form content pieces that and particularly being able to draw out elements that are are far deeper and and you know for, for a lot of people who are not dedicated fans of your sport or your property probably the things that could actually tweak some interest in them that you're better off exposing that to a group of people who are not your dedicated existing fans rather than necessarily using it as a as another reason to to create some stickiness on your own platform but you know everyone's got their own strategy that all of these sports properties are in very very different stages or situations um and so everyone's going to make their decisions based on on you know what their what their best guess is at the time of, of how they can achieve their goals yeah, 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 and that the, the audience, uh, the, the basketball audience, is definitely one that has its own code and that's their, their own codes, and that's very you know, uh, urban and hip hop, and that have different needs than the typical one you would probably see for world volleyball. So that's how I understand the differences in, in strategy, and I think that both of them are very relevant to their to their individual sports. Uh, but one thing that's super interesting also in the way you went about that courtside platform is very much like you go a lot of. Uh, 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 how you go about as FIBA with a lot of your strategies is building a long-term strategy with a big player in the space, right? So we talked about the, the zone FIBA joint venture. There's the one with in front on the whole uh, marketing side of things. And now on that platform, there's the specific one with two circles who is probably one of the best actors in the space right now. Um, and so tell us a little bit more. Is that, is that like, something that you proactively look for is it something that where organizing organizations are interested in FIBA so come about with good suggestions how you know how are those decisions made uh, within FIBA and is it part of a strategy to say hey we only go in long-term relationships to actually build the value and optimize it so that by 2030 we actually have the place that we want to have in the sports environment uh, I'd, I'd say first and foremost it's reflective of whether it's spoken or unspoken mentality within FIBA, that it is an organization that is both very open to and and has has exhibited a great capacity to be collaborative with whether commercial organizations, as you mentioned, design in front, uh, now, now two circles, or or even with other actors in the space. So we have Mark Tatum, who sits on the central board of, of FIBA, who's the deputy commissioner of the NBA. And it'd be very easy as the International Federation to be all high and mighty and say, you know, we look after our own turf. The NBA is this amazing commercial behemoth that sits across there in the States and Canada. And, you know, we, we have players who participate in both, but, you know, ultimately we're the world body. Actually, the complete opposite. It's a That's a very, very... Um, strong and enduring relationship that's uh, that's there with the NBA, and you know they are they are such a big actor in the basketball space, and then you know then in sports space, full stop. And where, you know the sport of basketball is is fortunate to have a property that is is so, so attractive to to virtually every demographic on the planet that comes from that, and they build up stars in a way that you know you, you mentioned volleyball, whether it's volleyball or handball, for instance, you know. Great sports, some great you know domestic audiences, a lot of interest in a lot of different countries, but they probably don't have global stars that, of the likes of you know 
like Luka Doncic, you know, Anderson Kumpu, yeah. Ben Simmons, like you know, they're they're guys that are huge names that that even if you're not into basketball, you recognise. And so the the sport of basketball is sat in a in a brilliant brilliant position at the moment on many many fronts. Um, and you know it has has an incredibly rosy future both at domestic and and international level. So coming back to I guess the the point about those collaborations, I guess the the design and in front ones for FIBA Media and FIBA Marketing respectively were as part of more structured processes of FIBA identifying a very very specific need to to work with an external partner both for for financial and expertise reasons. And both of those came about in a in a in a way that followed a you know an, an extensive um, you know I guess whether you call it selection process, but certainly working out which external organisation was best partner to take forward, and in a very very long term manner. Um, in terms of the the two circles involvement with Courtside in ninety one, that actually started as a as I mentioned as a consultancy relationship, and, and two circles were bringing a lot of value to the table both from their their previous experience of being involved with digital platforms, particularly OTT platforms for the likes of you know, NFL Game Pass and Tennis TV. But also there's probably not too many better, or if, if any, in, in the world of fan data management for sports and the utilisation of that fan data, both to, both to improve and develop products, but also for marketing purposes. And it came to the point that, that we were looking at two circles and saying, actually, they're you know, they, they have the capacity to make this this product a lot better um, than it would mm-hmm. otherwise be. And two circles coming to, to Fever and saying, actually, we've got a huge amount of belief in this product and we we want to be a part of it in a more deeper way than just a, you know, a service provider or an advisor on the sidelines. And from that point, I guess we, we almost have the dual track of both developing the strategy, developing the business model, but also developing what a partnership might look like on that front and you know that was something that both parties were very careful very very precise with um that we you know we, we tried to use you know existing structures as much as we could but it was a very very bespoke project that that we're running so um over quite a period of time we eventually came to both you know an, an economic and a, you know a delivery arrangement that everyone was comfortable with and i think very much like the the FIFA media relationship it's it's a partnership by name but also in substance um, as well, you know, the, it's it's obviously turned into a very very important venture for two for two circles who you know are very very um you know very very prominent in the space of acquisitions at the moment, but also in in being able to demonstrate that they can take these projects from you know something that is essentially being built from scratch into what we hope will be you know one of if not the leading basketball media property um in you know in the world by the time we get a couple of years down the track, and but it's being done in a way in which we internally try not to get caught up in what does FIBA want, what does Two Circles want on the other side. We're always trying to keep that that idea at the forefront of how can we best serve these <coughs> serve, serve the basketball fan community? How can we give them something that is going to be attractive to them and they think is worth investing both their time and their money in at, um, at their end, but also looking after all the different basketball stakeholders, whether it's the national federations, the leagues, our existing broadcast partners, and you know, it's a it's a complex mix, but but trying to trying to create something that that serves all of those objectives, and once again, in a way which creates a good product at the end of the day. Yeah, for from my position, having been in the startup world, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's two organizations taking a mutual risk uh, because there is a risk there, but there can be a lot of benefits in the midterm 
if the if the if the project follows the path that you probably have in mind for it. So um, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of you know <laughs> that you know it's like a, a marriage, right? In some kind of way. So you have to you know. Uh, Put the interest of, of the of the couple at the center versus push your own agenda uh, in each you know um, on each side. So that's a very interesting one. Um, just because we're going to be out of time very soon, uh, and we could go on on this conversation for very long. But uh, one thing I wanted to touch base on is that the fact that uh, beyond working for FIBA, beyond beyond you know being uh, in the middle of all those joint ventures, big strategies, etc. You are also involved in cricket, so tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, so it's a uh, it's a, it's an interesting. I don't know. If calling it a sideline is probably a, a major stretch, but uh, I guess outside of, outside of basketball, cricket's cricket's my major sport, and and certainly the one that I've I've played the most over the years. And uh, when I first moved to Switzerland about six years ago, that was one of the ways in which I established a new community of friends as well by joining up to. Uh, the local cricket club just outside of Lausanne um, called Cosne Cricket Club. Uh, we've uh, it's you know the club that's been around for 25 or was around for 25 years at the time. Recently had its it had its 30th birthday, but has become a really really great source of of, of friendships and, and a way to way to really stay involved in the game. And to come a long story short. Um, the it enabled us to get involved in a, a new venture, the European um, Cricket Network, which has uh, come up, had its first big event, European Cricket League, back in 2019, um, started by a uh, by a great Australian young entrepreneur, Daniel Weston, who was based up in, in Germany and uh, had been reeling off a product called German Cricket TV for a while. Um, met up, met up odd, oddly in an, in, in an incredible coincidence, which has very little to do with why I'm involved in it, but uh, with Frank mm-hmm. Lenders and Thomas Clues, uh, who are both part of uh, FIBA um, as well on the FIBA media and marketing side, and what created out of nothing. I have to interrupt you because I didn't even know cricket existed in Germany. But sorry, keep going. It's, no, it's a, well, it's, it's part of the interesting story of cricket on the continent, which you know had had its history back in the day where. You had countries like Denmark and a few others that had either connections with for business or educational purposes with with the United Kingdom at the time, which was you know, a fairly influential com- country going back a couple of hundred years. That yeah. that cricket was actually something that was played, particularly I guess in elite schooling circles or elite business circles, um, and then has been completely reinvigorated probably in the last fifteen years by you know large large amounts of subcontinental immigration and obviously with cricket being a sport where it's very very popular in commonwealth countries but in particular across india pakistan bangladesh uh, going down to afghanistan sri lanka as well um so that and that was that was part of part of the, the i guess the the business rationale for for starting the european cricket network as well of there just being a completely underserved demand of cricket on the European continent. And so the guys developed first and foremost the European Cricket League um, and then a product called the European Cricket Series, which goes to different countries on a weekly or fortnightly basis and plays uh, T10 cricket tournaments. And that came to Switzerland in 2020. I was uh, put up for a commentary role by Cricket Switzerland. And at the end of the week of mixing commentary with playing, uh, the European cricket guys said, look, you're okay at this. If you ever want to do it again, then then let us know. And so uh, that's how I've used some of my holiday time over the last couple of years of 
going to far fun, fun places like Lisbon and Melmo and more recently Malaga uh, to, to commentate on short form European cricket. And it's, it's an, it is one, literally one of my favorite things that I've been involved in. And it's great to see the, you know, a, a, an entrepreneurial activity like that. And particularly one that's promoting a sport that you love really yeah. taking shape. It's amazing as a, as a kid who used to love listening to cricket on the radio or watching on the TV to sort of almost live out that boyhood dream of being one of the commentary team and listen, you know, see, seeing the fact that your voice is being heard, you know, being heard by a couple of million people across the, across the world, uh, you know, who are watching the live broadcasts. It's, um, it's not something that I ever expected to be involved in, or I guess sort of planned yeah. a career move, but it's, it's a really, really enjoyable thing to do. Yeah, so I was going to say, that what does a managing director of a big international federation do on his time off? He actually does the commentaries for another sport as a side gig that has two million uh, listeners to him. So that's that that that's a nice story. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a funny one, and I guess I have uh, I have a lot of appreciation for what our commentators go through with FIFA Media uh, as well, um, from having been on the other end of it. But but it's it's great, and and I guess the great thing is compared to a managing director role is that. Once the game's and done and dusted each day, that's the end of my job, and I, you know, get to shut up the microphone, shut up the laptop, and and go back to the hotel. And it's it's a it's a great condensed experience. Yeah, I guess you get to enjoy it more than the way we do it in the working fully on on our sport. That makes a lot of sense. Um, just one last note, if uh, to conclude the, this podcast, um, what would you recommend in terms of you know what have you read, watched? followed recently that could be inspiring to all the, the audience that is listening to us, uh, you know, whether it be a book, a, a TV series, a movie, like what would you recommend to our audience? Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll leave aside the recommendation to the, to the La Corner podcast, which has some, has had some great material the last, uh, last couple of months. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really big on podcasts, to be honest. I think they're a great format for really in-depth discussion. I think if there's one thing that I look at from the, the sports and the sports media world, we're a little bit too press releasey sometimes in the way that we talk about things. There's there's a lack of lack of rigor uh, going into the the hows or the whys that someone's trying to achieve something, and especially for someone like myself, who I think it was almost a a bit of a, a positive cynic in a way of. I don't like reading things at just a superficial level and I'd like to question them, but question them with a view to how, you know, how can we make this work or how can this new technology evolve to be particularly useful for basketball or the sports industry or the like. Um, that, so on that front, there's a couple of, couple of podcasts that are, a podcast I really enjoy is the unofficial partner podcast, which Richard Gillis hosts, um, you know, sometimes yeah. quite UK centric, but, but Richard's got a great way of, Asking what are, are you know probing, but sometimes sometimes quite basic questions that are great to have, give people the floor to to describe what's going on. Um, that's certainly one of them, and I guess the the other one in terms of more reading content. Um, I always really enjoy getting the uh, the leaders um, newsletter each week and the broadcast disruptors newsletter, yeah. and I like coming from that slightly cynical viewpoint. I like the way that yeah. James and David take a bit of a uh, a bit of a let's let's mock the top line, you know, headline, but look into a little bit more depth as to what's what's really going on. Question the validity of strategies, you know, make an assessment of what they think is, you know, a smart move or not so smart move. And it's it's a really really good 
um, format. And I don't think, it, you know, one, as I said, one thing I really enjoy opening each week. Yeah, I, I do have to agree. I, I love their cynical approach and I love that they bring a different tone that makes you want to read them over all the other newsletters that are out there because you, you know that you're going to have interesting information and it's going to get a grin or two out of you. So I uh, totally double down on that. One last question. Who would you recommend? Who would you like to hear that you work with, that you know about, that would be interesting for us to reach out to? Uh, for our corner podcast oh incredible uh, big question i, I don't close close to home i genuinely and this seems entirely sycophantic i really actually sitting down and talking with frank lenders who heads up fever media and marketing about his thoughts on the you know the media in the digital world we don't we don't necessarily always agree 100 of the time um you know probably probably most of the time we do um but you know really really good thinker on on macro and micro trends um as well and you know for someone who's been around for for quite a while as well you know very much up to date on um you know the the burgeoning world of blockchain enabled um activity and nfts and the like which you know a bit of a, a separate discussion um entirely uh, i think it's separately there's you know the, one space i'm really really big on and really really interested in is I guess, mobile-enabled participation or coaching um, for sports. So there's a couple of great products around. You've got Home Court in, in the basketball space, which is essentially a basketball training app that utilises your um, your mobile phone camera to record and analyse your, your shooting performances and the like. Um, there's there's another one that, that I know the guys well who are developing one for cricket called Full Track, which is once again a, you know, a bowling analysis program and pitch mapping um, service just utilizing utilizing an iPhone. I think those the people who are in those spaces, I think that talking about how they make that work, where they're going, is really really interesting. And I think if there's one thing that I suspect to come to the surface in the next couple of years, that it's actually how on earth do we energize and develop that next generation of fans i think for too long it's been very easy for for federations and leagues to say we've got a social media strategy or we're going to release some nft and almost saying that's that's the job done and that i think that's a that's a long way from it and actually i think part of the reason why i like those or that space is because it is getting down to the nuts and bolts of how do you encourage kids to to not only play but keep on returning again and again and trying to improve themselves in particular sports and using a device that's in the hands of just about everyone um, on the planet these days yeah that's a good point I, I think to wrap it up it's i think that everybody coming in the sports environment do it by passion or most of us uh, and we actually stick around because we know we're facing challenges and there are nice opportunities that go against those challenges so Um, one of them is how those user behaviors and how we don't lose um, um, kids uh, that, you know, our generation were sports fans and we like practicing the sport. And now we know that we're losing some of that audience to, uh, you know, gaming, esport, and all of that. And I think that the challenges of making sure that um, the kids live what we live through sports and pass it on is something that's super powerful. So yeah, uh, we will look into those two th those two startups because yeah. that's super interesting. And I guess in fairness, I mean, you guys are right on the cusp of that as well. I mean, the, you know, the products that you know, uh, products like Live Like, for instance, that are that really try to step into that space of 
creating a, an, an extra layer of interactivity or a reason to be interested in something that you, know, you, you might have a passion level of three, four, but actually it's giving you a reason to have a passion level of seven, four uh, in the meantime. And I think that is, there's, there's so many different elements of that fan recruitment, particularly at younger ages, and then the development of uh, cultivation of that interest, which is just such an important area for us to to get right, not even not even just purely from a commercial perspective, but to get right just for the well-being of sports. And I, you know, I I don't really want to have a generation of kids that grow up playing nothing but computer games. But computer games are, you know, if you if you nut down computer games, if they the, the the, you know, there's a lot of elements of it in terms of cooperation, in terms of reinforcement of positive behaviours, in terms of easy accessibility, in terms of spending time with your friends. That are all things that you can develop playing sport, and obviously it's far healthier to, to do so, at least physically, maybe not necessarily uh, cognitively. But we've over time just almost made it progressively harder and harder for kids to engage in sort of unstructured or unsupervised sports play, and you know. Hopefully, we can use technology to to enhance that in the future. I think there's definitely room for us to make uh, our experiences fun and get that fun element that they get from game from from games from esport and all of this to the actual sport. The fun we found right away because we didn't have all those possibilities, but making it fun and engaging also on our platforms of the sports that we love is definitely something that's very uh, exciting um, on the live like side of things. But um, But Andrew, look, I mean, it was it, it was really fun and we went above and beyond. So I hope that um, people will like it as much as we loved recording it. Um, thanks a lot for your time and uh, and wish you all the best for the new Courtside 1891 product. No, th thanks a lot. And thanks to you, Sam. You've been a, you've been a great, great sounding board for us over the last couple of years as well. It's always um, an excellent conversation um, that we have on, on any of these topics. So great to be able to talk to you today and, uh, and uh, look forward to listening more to podcasts in the future. Thanks a lot, Andrew. And thank you, everyone, for listening. As usual, don't hesitate to share, like, talk about the look corner around you and look forward to having you for the next episode. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io, to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Corner.